Sidebar with veteran and military analyst, Armchair Warlord. America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. I was in foot him. America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. I was in foot him. America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. I was in foot him. I swear to you, this is not a question of laughing at someone who's who has um compromised faculties. If this were a movie starring Leslie Nielsen, the great Canadian comedian, this would have been the punchline. This is literally what they would have. He has his moment. He's what did he, how did he describe it here? America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. This is supposed to be the most moving, powerful, unifying moment of his speech. America as a nation can be described in one word. America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. I was going to put him uh, put, And that's, I mean, it's, it's terrible in a sense, because I think everybody can understand what's going on, but nobody can say it publicly because it's politically incorrect, which then leads into the other side. If there's nothing wrong with what's going on, then that is, uh, on the one hand, comedic gold and comedic tragedy. And my observation, Kofefe was headline news for, for a week, if, if not more, Kofefe, Donald Trump's insane, idiot, idiotic, absurd uh, accident of a, of a tweet, I mean, a butt, a butt tweet, uh, was news for a week. He said, look how unstable. This guy has the, key, the codes to the nukes. Kofefe, Kofefe became a thing. The only problem is this flub, you can't even... You can't even, what's the word I'm looking for when you phonetically spell it? <sighs> okay. Um, we'll start off on a light note. Uh, some housekeeping as well. Uh, James Top is the Canadian, uh, people will call him a patriot, who is marching from uh, the Terry Fox Monument in Vancouver to Ottawa. Is in Ottawa today, was in Ottawa today, meeting with members of parliament who agreed to meet with him. He has been marching across Canada. And he drove in from wherever he had reached in Ontario to meet with some MPs. I was going to go down today to live stream that meeting, but they were not letting members of the public in because uh, I can understand they're meeting with members of parliament and don't necessarily want some dude like with me with the camera sitting there live streaming a meeting. So I would not have been able to get in. So I decided not to go down. Uh, they, have, they had streamed the interview anyhow on James Topps channel which is called James Top on the YouTubes. Live from the Shed with David Paisley was also restreaming it. I restreamed the second of the two interviews on my second channel, Viva Clips, in its entirety. So you can go see uh, James Top, Tom Marazzo, Dr. Paul, I keep forgetting his last name, addressing members of parliament, those who had the courage or at least the intellectual curiosity to go see uh, on the second channel, Viva Clips. So... I feel very naked when I uh, naked re restream someone else's stream, someone else's content. You never know what they're going to say that might get you into trouble. Thus far, demonetized, remonetized, and still up on YouTube. So go check it out after this to learn about James Top, what he's doing if you don't know about it, to watch it if you do know about it, and to share and spread the word uh, for the world. Now, 
Tonight, we've got Armchair Warlord. I'm not going to put an H in a Warlord because it. <laughs> I, I, I was rehearsing that joke in my head. And Armchair Warlord, if I were to add the H, it might sound like something else. Armchair Warlord, Tyler, a real human. We're not going to have a pulsing avatar tonight. We have an actual face. Um, is uh, interesting character, interesting take, military experience, veteran, and um, has become something of uh, a social media, not saying influencer, a voice of uh, insight as relates to geopolitics and more specifically, more currently, what's going on in Ukraine and Russia. I have been told that the chat might be a little saucy tonight. In fact, now that I remember people, I'm going to go put it into slow mode because I forgot to do that. Slow mode to 15 seconds slow mode right now. So stop messaging, stop chatting, stop commenting because you're going to lose it. We're in slow mode. I've been told that the chat is going to be saucy. So I'll be keeping it, keeping, a, <laughs> keeping a, an eye out for that. Thank you for the super chat right in time for the standard disclaimers. No legal advice, no election fortification advice, no medical advice. YouTube takes 30% of super chats. Um, I'm going to get to this question in a second. YouTube takes 30% of Super Chats. If you do not like that, we are simultaneously streaming on Rumble, where I just put out a funny tweet. I I didn't realize that Andrew Torba of Gab referred to me as the Jewish lawyer, David Freyhead. Whatever. We're simultaneously streaming on Rumble. And um, Rumble has a thing called Rumble Rants, like a YouTube Super Chat, except Rumble takes 20%, so better for the creator, better for the platform. Best way to support the channel, merch, vivafry.com, and there's some good Barnes stuff in there as well, or vivabarnslaw.locals.com. Uh, everyone's in the house. So let me just say, Viva, did you have to show proof of vax at both borders last week? Uh, the U.S. asked and did not ask for documentation. Canada, the Arrive Can app, they already have. If you've downloaded it and used it once, they have your picture, your passport, your vax documents. Uh, And as of September, uh, those who have been double vaccinated may no longer be up to date and may have to uh, go through the exact same persecution, unscientific abuse of if they don't get up to date with whatever up to date means next September and going forward, they may have to quarantine upon a return to Canada, which is enough to rightly make people leave this country and never come back. Okay, setting all that aside. Armchair Warlord, Barnes in the house. If I do not bring up your super chat and you're going to be miffed about that, don't give it. I don't like people feeling miffed, riff, rook, whatever. Uh, and let us break into the conversation, people. Going to bring in Tyler first. Going to bring in Barnes. Going to change the order so that I block only my ugly face like such. Okay. Gentlemen, how goes the battle for the evening? It's going pretty well so far. Can't complain. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Well, we're only seven minutes into it. So, Tyler, I don't know if you're sensitive about chat. If you are or it might distract you, don't. You may not want to read the chat <laughs> while we go, but you seem like a thick-skinned individual. Um, I've got I've got rhino hide from time from my time in the Army. I'm not too worried about it. Okay, so now let's do, we always start with a 30,000-foot overview for those on this channel who may not know who you are. 30,000-foot overview before we get into some of the standard intro questions. Well, I mean, I'm a, uh, I mean, just to sort of explain who I am, um, I certainly wasn't expecting to be be where I am today three months ago when I decided to start commenting on the war on Twitter. But uh, I'm a, uh, but 
so I'm a 11 year U.S. Army veteran. I um, was uh, um, um, was in the artillery. I was commissioned in, was commissioned in uh, well, I was commissioned in 2009, and uh, so spent uh, nine years on active duty as an officer and another two couple of years in the reserves. Um, and uh, so after I got off of active duty, I went to went to law school and actually just just graduated that. So right now you're you're interrupting my bar prep. <laughs> Uh, congratulations on the uh, on the law degree. Uh, what you. was uh, some of your family background? In other words, uh, we often explore, you know, what leads people to be independent of thought, willingness to challenge, question, contest, establishment, institutional, credentialed, pedigreed narratives. Uh, and as part of that is, you know, exploring sort of uh, family background as well as professional background and unique life experience. Uh, what, what was your, your upbringing in terms of parents, siblings, occupations, things of that nature? Well, I grew up in a... Grew up in upstate New York. Uh, my, uh, my, uh, uh, my. So, grew up in upstate New York. My dad, um, he was in the Navy for a long time, and uh, after that, after he got out of the Navy, worked in the nuclear power industry for a long time. So, um, got a very. I mean, honestly, he was the he was the whole reason I joined joined the military in the first place. I'm sort of hearing the. I mean, you you just get the best stories out of the army. And you'll be telling them for the for the rest of your life to your kids, and then you people wonder why. People wonder why, you know, the children of veterans always end up going back and going into the military as well. They've been they've been hearing all the war stories and all, all the good ones and none of the bad ones. <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, I grew up grew up there. Um, I also went to school up there and got a well, I'm, I'm actually an engineer by training. So then but uh, I, I did ROTC when I was in college and. I'll tell you, it was very nice having a job lined up because I graduated. I, went, I got out of undergrad in 2009 and it was very nice having a job lined up at that point because all of my colleagues were like just in despair because the, the economy had just fallen out from under them. And I was like, all right, well, I'm going to the army. I don't have, don't have too much to worry about. So, um, what did you, what did you, I mean? So you have to get into this experience in the army. Uh, it's foreign to me. I've never done it. Never done the training. Uh, how does that start? How do you decide to go into the army and what do your parents say about it? I guess based on your life experience, they're going to be eager for you to do it. Well, I, honestly, I, they, they weren't um, because I, I mean, I started doing ROTC in 2006. What's that was ROTC? The, Sorry, uh, the what that? Oh, it's the reserve officer training course. So basically yeah. a, uh, it's a way to get commissioned. If you're going to a normal, uh, a, to uh, get to the military as an officer, if you're going to a, just like a normal college, um, cause you, you can go into a service academy and that'll commission you, or, um, there's some like private service academies in the U S uh, which also are sort of auxiliary West points. I'd almost call them, but also there's a, there's a big program which graduates a lot of officers. It's, it's called the, the reserve officer training corps. And, um, it's basically a, um, you sort of do it part-time while you're just going to school. And as it happened, I'd, uh, I was actually my sophomore year at the time and I was, um, and I had sort of toyed with the idea of joining of joining the army and you know getting a getting a scholarship when I was in high school, and then I uh, didn't end up doing that right away. But I was able to. Um, I actually had some some space in my my class schedule, and I was like, well, you know, I'll start doing ROTC and see how I like it, and see if I you know see if they can get me on contract. And uh, three years later, I was getting getting commissioned on the drill field at uh, Fort Lewis. So. <laughs> now you said you went into artillery. Which part of the uh... So uh, what was your experience in the military? So 
so yeah, I, I went into the artillery. Um, so that's, yeah, you do, do, uh, initially do training on both how and the, there's really two sides of the artillery in, in the, uh, in the U S army, at least there's a, basically, a a fire support side and a gunnery side. And there's the, the sort of general officer work of just sort of planning and managing units. Um, and, uh, so, I mean, they initially sent me to school for, uh, sent me to school for just to learn how to, um, because let me back up a little bit. So, because artillery officers really do two things. Um, they both, uh, liaise with like infantry units or armored units and, and they plan fires for them. So you have to like really learn how the, uh, how the guys on the front line fight and how that, how, you know, operations sort of, sort of work to, uh, uh, so you can go in and you know, plan all these you know, artillery, you know, artillery fires and airstrikes and so on. So you can support the the you know, troops and tanks as they move across the battlefield. And the other thing I I learned how to do was actually on the do the back end work of uh, you know moving around cannon systems, uh, you know, calculating firing data and so on. Um, and so got through that. Um, spent. And I actually won the basically won the assignment lottery as a as a lieutenant. I got a got stationed in Hawaii for three years, which was very very nice. Um, I mean, I won't say that. Well, can caveat that a little bit by saying uh, being living in Hawaii for three years was really nice. The you know, 25th Infantry Division when I was there was not a happy unit. But um, well, I, sorry, you have to elaborate. What do you mean by that? Not a happy unit. I mean, I'll I could just say. Uh, I mean. Morale was low. Uh, the a lot of the units I was in had, you know, had you know, some problems of uh, whatever nature. Um, I mean, Schofield Barracks in particular, when I was there, uh, the, the problem was that uh, Schofield Barracks had uh, got pushed to the back of the line. Basically, when the the big money spigot opened up for the War on Terror, and uh, the army started, you know, building new facilities for all of its bases. Well, Schofield Barracks was at the back of the line there, so. Uh, and the money spigot got caught up, got cut off under Obama, when uh, at the point when um, before Schofield Barracks actually got money to you know, modernize its facilities. So the I mean the, the base itself was having some issues when I was there, and, um, and I mean the the units I was in were not super happy. But I mean at the, at the same time I was able to live in Hawaii for three years and get paid to do it. So <laughs> what was what lived up to your expectations uh, in the army, and what was uh, a disappointment uh, compared to your expectations in your army? In the army, well, I, I mean, I tell I tell people this all the time, but the being in the military is both far more and far less than it's cracked up to be. Um, because on the one hand, it's, I mean, and at some points, it's like you know, real band of brothers stuff. And I apologize if there's street noise in the background. Um, it, on the one hand, it's you know, real band of brother stuff. A lot, uh, some of the time, and you make incredible friends, and you and you you sort of you know come face to face with like how far can I go? Uh, how far can I push myself? I mean, you do the craziest stuff, and even just in training, you do the craziest stuff. Um, and but on the other hand, it's also on the other hand, it's also like it's a it's a workplace. Right. It's a it's a government workplace where a lot of the time you're, you know, a lot of the time you show up, do PT in the morning, then you work nine to five. And you could I mean, sometimes I was in my office literally doing paperwork or 
you know, answering emails or planning planning you know the frg cookout <laughs> like it's uh, uh it, it's it's both like it's both a workplace and a really crazy adventure at the same time so um I, i'm gonna ask you the just outright upfront question did you see active combat in your time in the military so so no i i uh i was never shot at in my time in the military um that now so I deployed to Iraq uh, once um, during the, uh, uh, it actually wasn't the earlier war, it was during the war against ISIS. So this was in, a, in the, so this was actually pretty late in my career. Um, but when I was there, I basically exchanged one office, uh, one office at Fort Bliss for another actually larger office in Iraq, um, doing, doing pretty similar stuff. Um, and we, we were, we were never, I mean, the, the place where I was was safe. It was uh, in particular at that point, um, the place where I was was safe. We, we never got engaged. Uh, we never you know, got even engaged with indirect fire or anything. So um, I've never been shot at. the the most The most dangerous thing I did in the army, actually, the, the way I, I actually got hurt doing this, um, was uh, was uh, was uh, doing airborne operations. Um, actually, after I uh, my last job in the army, the army decided to send me to airborne school when I was thirty, and. <laughs> You're not as you're not as flexible when you're 30 as uh, you are when you're 18, and um, so yeah, I've got I've got nine jumps and nine pins in my leg. <laughs> now, uh, what led you to leave the army? Well, I, um, I, uh, I mean, really, I sort of accomplished what I started doing it. I, um, I was a company commander for a little while, um, so I did a did a basically you. It's a, I almost explained is is you sort of have certain certain milestones in your career when you have to make a decision like do I want to get out of the army or do I want to, do I want to stay until the next milestone? So I did my lieutenant work, um, sort of did the the initial uh, set of fun stuff you you do as a you know, a junior officer to lead troops. Um, did did a little bit of that. Um, actually, spent a lot of my time spent a lot of my time as a lieutenant on staff for weird reasons, um, but. I mean, I, I did some, I did some fun stuff as a lieutenant. I decided, and so my, uh, for a lot of officers, your initial service obligation is only three or four years. So you're making captain at three or four years. Um, and, uh, so that's sort of your first point in which you can say, well, I'm, I don't want to be a captain. I'm, I've sort of, I've done what I, done what I came here to do. I'm going to get out. Or maybe the army doesn't agree with you, which I knew plenty of people who got out, you know, four years, they, they weren't really cut out for and They got out. Um, I decide, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go be a captain. I'm going to see, see how this goes. I'll get command. I'll, you know, I'll, uh, do my next step. And also I, I did that. I did basically all of the, the captain stuff. I, uh, served as a battalion FSO, uh, served as a battalion fire support officer for a little while. And that was a, also it was probably the hardest job I did in the army. I was harder than commanding. Um, then I, uh, that was you know, planning when I was actually out there uh, planning fires for an infantry battalion um, at uh, and you know did all kinds of stuff with those guys and then uh, then I uh, had a command after that um, that which was also successful and then so I, I and then uh, well and then I started getting a really good look at well what, what does the field grade life look like right what what what, is, what do things look like as a major and the major career track is is not uh, you really have to like 
kind of be a careerist and put your nose to the grindstone be like, okay, I'm going to be on a division staff for two years until I get a chance to do a staff job battalion for a couple of years. You know, lets me, lets me actually get promoted and you're not going to do anything. It's, it's, it's a grind. And I was like, you know what? I've always wanted to be a lawyer. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, <laughs> like, you know, I, I've always wanted to be a lawyer. I think it's time for me to go my backup career here. So, I'm, I'm going oh. to get to four super chats because one of them, I think is the question we want to ask what type of engineering is that was actually not a super chat. That's just a regular comment. Um, what were Tyler's pronouns in the army? I think that's a humorous comment. Uh, and best prep advice. I applied for AF pilot, given a psych test. One question was, would you rather attend opera baseball game, a hanging for pilots? Answer is baseball. Guess number three is for lawyers. <laughs> I won't, armchair, I won't ask what you answered for that, but what, what type of engineering uh, did you do? So I, I'm a mechanical engineer. Okay. Oh, and now my. you're back to law school. Yep. And you just finished law school. Now you're studying for the bar. Now, in between there, uh, you wrote a book. Yeah. What led to that? So, well, well so I've, I guess I've always been a little bit of a storyteller. I mean, even when I was a kid, I was, I was writing. So when I was, uh, Actually, when I was a, when I was a lieutenant, I started outlining this book. And uh, when I was uh, a little while after I got promoted, when I was going to the the captain's course, so because they send you back to school as a captain to learn your, learn those jobs, um, sort of learn how to do your job at a higher level. I started uh, started writing my first novel, and so I um, basically yeah it took me about four years um, to do sort of um, in my spare time. And actually, it's kind of funny the amount of it that I was either wrote written. Uh, at the National Training Center uh, or written in Iraq. <laughs> but, um, but the, uh, so I published that right as I was uh, getting out of the army. And then I started working on my second book, which I've been writing in my spare time during law school. And I'm just about to finish that one. So what, and what's, what's the, the yeah, sorry, Brian, so go for it. Yeah. Yeah. What, what's the book about? What's the gist of it? What inspired it? So it's a uh, it's a World War One it's a a World War One esque military fantasy novel, which you don't see very many of those. So it's uh, I think it's a little bit at least a little bit of a fairly um fairly original work, and uh, it's a and uh, I just sort of found uh, found the World War One period compelling. Um, it's sort of the it was sort of the last like traditional war and. Uh, sort of the last like gentlemanly war almost, but at the same time it was a very you know, modern modern ugly conflict um and so and uh i think it sort of let me uh let me do some use some sort of more uh traditional fantasy themes in almost um so i thought it was you know, a very compelling sort of a sort of compelling premise how uh if i've been asked the totally indiscreet question how has it sold what's the level of interest in that type of very specific niche genre uh well i would say it's because well, I, I I'm an in, I'm an independent author. I self-published it, and for a self-published book, it's done extremely well. For a, um, I mean, I think I've probably sold more copies than some of the you know Trump administration tell-all memoirs that have come out. But that's that's not a it's not a high bar to clear. So. <laughs> now, uh, what led to your willingness to engage in the court of public opinion on a range of issues concerning Ukraine and the rest? Uh, for like, I forgot to give like the opening statement version. There, there are different parts of our audience that want to know, you know, what's the context, what's the history. Our natural tendency in these questions is to do like a direct examination, like a lawyer would. 
So we're leading people to the conclusion, but some people want the opening statement version beforehand. The some background of Armchair Warlord uh, came to my attention because of on social media countering a lot of the incredibly bad intel and information that's out there by the so-called open source intelligence community, mocked as the you know the brosent community uh, of blue check marks, think tanks, Western media, uh, the UK Ministry of Defense is willing to just hop onto this insanity. Uh, the Pentagon stays somewhere in between in their official statements, but some of their unofficial statements go off the res. Make some preposterous claims. We've seen General Milley make some ludicrous claims at the beginning of this conflict, said Russia was going to conquer Ukraine in 72 hours. Given the size of Ukraine, the largest country in continental Europe other than Russia, you know, it's the, it's the distance between New York to Chicago, down to Memphis, all the way over to North Carolina, to give people a comparison. The idea you're going to conquer that in 72 hours with a quarter of a million trained military troops and up to four million mobilized troops that have been trained for almost a decade by billions and billions of dollars of U.S. and NATO aid was always ludicrous, but, you know, people bought it extraordinarily. But uh, was it seeing the absurdity and inanity of explanation? Because I compared it to the public health experts during COVID-19 who all disproved and discredited the credentialed and pedigreed professional class of public health experts and would-be public health experts in that environment. We've seen the same thing in the military. Like, just basic analysis and information uh, before you came along was very difficult to get. Uh, and, I mean, you know, the in terms of logistics, in terms of fortifications, in terms of morale, in terms of psyops, basic training that members of the, that, uh, of members of the American military have or should have was not being shared by, you know, the Instead, we got the ghost of Kiev and the mighty rebellion at Snake Island. And, you know, one lie after the next lie after the next lie. False flags and staged events. Ukraine do something terrible, accused of Russia of doing it. Uh, things of this nature. What led you to be willing to publicly engage uh, in the court of public opinion on these issues? Well, I'd, I'd say I've never had a never been afraid to have an unpopular opinion in public. I mean, God, I'm sure many people working in the army can say, I mean, what, when I was infamous in the army for when, when we were doing ARs, I, I would, I would always come up and in front of God and everybody and say like, we, we really screwed something up here. We really need to work on this. Even during ARs when people were in, in ARs and after action review. So, you know, we did the operation. We're trying to review the operation, you know, see how we can improve. Well, I took that literally. And sometimes people are, you know, trying to, especially when, you know, the generals there or whoever, they're trying, they would would like a somewhat sanitized view of the operation to be promoted. And uh, it, it, here's, here's, you know, Captain Weaver being like, being like yeah, so uh, this was, this, this did not go well and we really need to approve this in the future. And, uh, and then, I, I mean, I've, I mean, I've been, uh, on top of that, I mean, I've, I've certainly said, you know, to my to my friend group, uh, my my unvarnished opinion about any number of uh, any number of you know cause celebs over the last several years, whether it was, uh, I mean, whether it was the um, the various incidents of summer twenty twenty, or uh, or I mean the subsequent election, or I mean the pandemic. Um, I mean, that's sort of how I sort of how I um, ran into both of you was either doing a, I mean, or how I knew of both of you was either you know pandemic or election related stuff. Um, uh, 
I'm going to ask you this because you, when did you get active on Twitter? Because you, you write, you have the book, you're sort of yep. not, uh, you're not a solitary individual, but when did you create the account? When did you amass the following that you amassed? So the funny thing is I've actually had that account forever. Um, I actually created the account in, if you look at, look at my account, I created in March of 2014 um, for the purpose of actually following news on Twitter about the invasion of Iraq by ISIS. Um, because that, that, I mean, Twitter was where all the news was at the time. It was a really, really crazy place. And I was like, I need to actually get an account. And I, I think also at the time, Twitter started kind of cracking down on letting you access the platform if you didn't have an account. So I made my account then and engaged a tiny little bit on on, the, on it then. And then um, I think March, uh, and then the, the war, this war kicked off. And and uh, I, I pre, prior, to the, prior to this, I never posted. Um, and then this war kicked off and I decided, well, and I'd just been seeing all of this. Uh, and honestly, I just got, I was seeing the same thing you were saying uh, was the, this avalanche of nonsense uh, coming out of, you know, sources that I thought were reputable and the, the canary in the, cause I mean, I started following all these, a lot of these OSIN accounts I'm either previously or during the, uh, a lot of them I started following during the uh, the Afghanistan debacle, which was only nine months ago, astonishingly, because um, they've been you know, passing news on this. And well, I was still following them when this Ukraine stuff started kicking off. And I and the, the canary in the coal mine for me was that the pretty much when everything kicked off, and I think right before when it kicked off, the Ukraine government put out a statement saying, don't talk about our losses. Don't post any of our, don't post uh, our troop movements. Don't post anything about our soldiers. And as one, as a single entity, the entire OSINT enterprise on Twitter decided we are going to act as agents of the Ukraine government and <laughs> censor ourselves. And and we're only going to report on Russia and we will, we'll, we will, like when it comes to Ukraine, it's just the Ukraine party line. I'm like, I follow you people for analysis. Uh, uh, warlord. First of all, I, I think I might have uh, referred to as warrior and not warlord, armchair warrior. Uh, did, did I read a thread on Reddit. Robert, you tell me if I'm, if this is total gibberish. That apparently on Reddit, uh, there was a thread to the effect that people who had gone to fight or support Ukraine had actually doxed their position by taking selfies, posting them to social media, resulting in Russian uh, bombardment or retaliation. Do either of you know if those stories are actually true or is it internet lore? I, I, I'm pretty certain that's, I, I I mean, I'm not dead certain that's what happened. But I'm, I'm fairly certain that's what actually happened was when the war first kicked off, this was a big, I mean, it was a big cause celeb. Uh, people on, I guess, certain Reddit communities were recruiting people to go to Ukraine to be foreign fighters, which there's legal implications with that, which, I mean, I'm not super up on those, but there, this is a, something which I think the government... It strike you as a good idea, that from the get-go. Because <laughs> no, I was amazed that people in the West were encouraging a bunch of idiot kids to rush over into this conflict that you that they were Ukraine was unprepared to uh, to acclimate them to, and they were unprepared to actually fight. Uh, were you shocked? I mean, because I hadn't seen that in the modern age. I'd seen it, you know, in the Islamic world and other places where they encourage this behavior, but I'd not seen the West say, "Hey, kids." You know, I mean, we had the uh, foreign secretary of the United Kingdom, Elizabeth Truss, saying, let's go, let's go, let's send him over there. Go over, you idiot 20-year-old, you know, the <laughs> idiot 30-year-old. 
Uh, now, of course, they're complaining because they're getting captured and the Donetsk and the uh, and other militias authorities, local political authorities wanting to prosecute. Them. But were you shocked when you first saw that, that there was actually organizing on Reddit to go fight in Ukraine? Yeah, I, I mean, I was not. I mean, I, was, I won't say I was shocked at, at it because the, it was sort of an extension of like earlier recruiting activity that we'd see online, like um, uh, like uh, Aiden Aslan. The British guy who was captured, he he had actually uh, he had actually initially gone to fight for the YPG in Syria, and so there had sort of been a I'd call it a rat line to you know recruit Westerners to fight for the Kurds initially, and which had been tolerated uh, in the West, and well, and so this was really an extension of stuff I sort of I've seen sort of a small scale in Syria, and then, but as far as you know this becoming a giant cause celeb. I, I was, I mean, I was, I wasn't surprised at this, this existing, but I was very surprised. Uh, actually, I'll tell you what I was very surprised about. It was that Western governments were a okay with allowing this. Right. I mean, the Ukrainians, they're, they're desperate. They remain desperate and they're going to, they're going to, to take whatever help they can get. The fact that, you know, we had Liz Truss saying, go and fight in Ukraine, go fight the Russian army. Like it's nuts. And can you explain to people why it's nuts? Well, why this is a very bad idea in case anybody's out there thinking about it right now, thinking call of duty. Hey, maybe, maybe I could live it. Well, I mean, I'll tell you the reason it's nuts is because the, you're fighting the Russian army. They have a very large army, a very modern army, and they're very good. Um, and if you've uh, been following my Twitter feed in the slightest, uh, the Ukrainians are taking something between 200 and 500 soldiers killed in action every day i mean it, there's there's a it's likely the ukrainians have lost more soldiers in four months of combat than the united states has lost in the entire vietnam war um i mean they've let me they, let me, let me, stop, let me stop you there because that, that seems so shocking to ordinary uh individuals who might be watching the news 200 you're estimating uh 200 to 500 a day killed not 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 um uh what's the not, a, not casualty uh, killed a day. How, how, how do you get that? What's the evidence? I mean, how do you even support that claim? Well, I mean, the Ukrainians said it themselves um, out of, I mean, directly out of Zelensky's mouth. There are other Ukrainian government officials. They said, you know, what they're, I mean, they've, they've gone from saying, they've gone from admitting you know, 100 a day a couple of weeks ago to 200 plus. And I think it's 200 to 500. And this is, this is what the Ukrainians themselves are saying. <laughs> There was a, a incredible admission last week by the uh, Ukraine, one of the Ukraine deputy uh, ministers of defense, who admitted that their their army, even with all the replacements that have been flooding in, even with I mean they've been conscripting people as fast as they can, uh, they've been pulling you know, pulling military aged men off the streets, um, and you know, throwing them into the army with you know a week of training. Um, they've been. Can you getting explain a huge- why that's not? a great method of manpower for military service. Because like, one of the things that shocked me is or it's so-called open source intelligent, OSINT, military experts in, on, on network news, think tank folks, uh, seem to think that this will be no problem. You, you'll just take a 20-year-old, drag him, or sometimes 50-year-olds, depending on the, in, in Ukraine, drag him in, give him three days of training, throw him to the front line, and think that's somehow going to really work against the Russians. Can you explain the problem with that, how modern military successful warfare requires professional soldiers with real training? Well, if you look at the amount of, 
training that it requires to have not just a soldier, but to have a unit. So, I mean, got, got in the U.S. Army, we spend we 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 send soldiers to train for you know months, um, three four months before you get to train infantrymen out of that. And that and that infantryman is not that's a you know, a trained private, right? He can move and shoot. Um, that is not a and then you you put that guy into a unit which has NCOs in it who have you know, years of experience, who have officers in it who have years of experience, and you know, have gone to you know, different new, new and different schools to to learn how to lead and so on. Um, and you there's there's a just immense amount of institutional knowledge that goes into building an effective military unit. And the well, when, when the war kicked off, the Ukrainians have uh, first of all they started taking pretty catastrophic casualties uh, in their in their professional army because they, they had a very large standing army pre-war and in fact they had an army which was pretty comparable in size to the u.s army pre-war and much of that professional force is gone um, it's it's been taken out of action uh, to use a to use a euphemism and, and to you, you were ahead. able to predict you're one of the people that as you know one way i, I tell people to measure someone's capability uh, or analytical uh, skill is less on credentials and pedigrees and more on short-term predictability. The degree to which they can be accurate in the short to middle term gives you a much better sense of that. You, Jacob Drazen, and just a few other people in the military space on the Western side, I mean, a lot of the pro-Russian side predicted this, but putting that, but they had a reason to predict, motivation to predict it, but not as many people in the West did. What led you to believe that from the get-go, this was not a conflict Ukraine could likely prevail in, militarily? Well, I mean, the the short version of this is that I trained to fight the Russians for most of my military career. I'm highly familiar with their, and moreover, I didn't just train to fight them. I also paid attention to their to the war in Georgia in 2008, and to the war in, into the war in the Donbass in 2014 when the Russians did commit some of their forces. And I think I had a pretty good idea going in of sort of exactly what the Russians were capable of and uh, what their and uh, sort of how they're and what what the Ukrainians would be going up against. Um, I mean, I'd say my my main uh, I'd say my main uh, flubs as far as prediction, particularly early war, were I wasn't I, I didn't have a very good idea of what the Ukraine military looked like actually. Um, I sort of go, going into, uh, you know, I've got a YouTube channel. You can watch some of the, I did a few shows early war. Um, and I didn't have a very good idea of like what the Ukrainian, like how well Ukrainian brigades were staffed. Um, so some of my early assumptions were these were you know, sort of skeletal units similar to what they were sort of deploying in 2014. Turned out they were fully, they were fully manned. Um, but, and so the, the Russians were really going in, you know, going in and fighting a very large, very prepared military. Um, and they've, and they have really, I mean, if you, if you look at what the, and then you sort of look at where the Ukrainian military is now and they've been devastated. Uh, uh, I'm going I'm to bring this up, not to troll you armchair. These guys have zero facts. I'm going to leave that there for one second while I just, cause I fact check in the background, trust, but verify. From the BBC people, Ukrainian casualties, Kiev, losing up to 200 troops a day. Zelensky aid. This is from June 9th. 
Okay, we can we can go read that afterwards. A senior Ukrainian presidential aide has told the BBC that between 100 and 200 Ukrainian troops are being killed on the front line every day. Some people in the chat say double that or triple that for the true number. But wait, there's more. Let me just bring back when you say, uh, you know, about the Ukrainian army. This is where I have great difficulty um, pulling up these videos, relying on them. I know nothing. I know nothing. You retweeted this today. I don't know the context. I don't know who's in the video, when the video's from. So I don't retweet these things because I can't vet it. But you retweeted this. And apparently, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to know that the base plate should be flat on the ground to absorb the shock. But, and so this thing goes off and does it go off again? Who knows? No, it's, it, it only fired once. That's a... Very, a I've seen I've seen a mortar fired twice, but it's very hard to do that. Well, uh, no, I, problems that I think that you and others have pointed out is that incorporating random people from foreign locations, uh, uh, bringing just conscripting people off the street, grabbing them out of bus stations, grabbing them out of wherever they can, throwing them into this because they're not part of a cohesive, well-trained unit. That what there have been many reports that Ukrainian media, you know, the media and the rest have tried to suppress. But there's increasing reports coming out from Ukrainian military themselves at different times of friendly fire problems, of taking them that this is kind of a predictable problem. I mean, even the most professional militaries in the world have had this problem uh, in certain foreign zone conflicts. You know, arguably that's what happened with the, you know, the famous defensive back from Arizona who died. And they kind of hid that for a long time, special yeah. teams, special forces, man. But the uh, Tillman, but the but it's a real appears to be a real problem uh, in Ukraine. And it's another example of when people lie. Like, let's say you're out there and you're on the Ukrainian side. You hate Russia. You believe whatever you want to believe on that side. Lying repeatedly uh, only deserves people. It sends people to the front who aren't prepared and aren't ready. You get more and more of these kind of friendly fire problems and other problems like it. Uh, can you explain that from a military perspective why this was a bad military strategy for Ukraine to just be throwing people into cannon fodder in the front lines? Well, it's. I mean, I, I, I won't, I'm not sure if they have a choice at this point, if they're they're trying to. But it's a it's not a recipe for success. I mean, we've seen this many times before in the past. I mean, the the collapse of you know germany 1944 1945 they were doing similar stuff you know getting pulling people off the street creating volksturm units you know sending anyone sending anyone and everyone they had to you know to the front line um to you know, try to stop the allies i mean and, one of the points you pointed out was also they tried a lot of desperate ridiculous counterattacks like yeah and, and, ukrainian marketing pitch for the last month uh, uh, oh yeah i mean the the extent to which, like the the Ukraine government, you, you can sort of template like, okay, what would you know Germany do in 1945 and 1944-45, and what would the Ukrainians do? It's spooky, and I, I and you know I'm not not sure if we want to talk about this on YouTube necessarily, as far as you know the, the sort of a level of i'll call them ultra nationalist influence on we we go, we go with yahtzees on youtube yahtzees <laughs> and it's just we're talking about a game a yahtzee it's a... yeah so there's a there's a lot of yeo yahtzees uh in in ukraine who are in positions of incredible authority and influence and there's entire units of yeo yahtzees in their national guard and the, the extent to which uh, you can you can uh template 
or this to sort of template like, okay, what would Germany do in 1945? And then Ukraine's doing the same thing is honestly kind of remarkable because they're doing things like making completely pointless and making counterattacks that have just zero chance of success. And they're throwing entire tank battalions into these things. You know, it's not, it's, it's you know, hardly the battle of the bulge, but when you see sea reports, like an entire Ukraine, like an intact, fully manned, you know, the Ukrainians put together like a full tank, like tank unit, which had a huge amount of combat power. And they threw this at the Russians. And instead of like setting it down to defend somewhere, and you know, using it intelligently, they, they attacked with it against a superior Russian force that destroyed it completely. Um, this has happened multiple times. I mean, in in the, the Kherson region, they've been they've been you know throwing like they had, basically they're they've been throwing you know intact units um, from their operational command south. You know, guys who were in in Odessa and who were never touched at the start of the war, they've been taking intact units from there, and they're they're trying to attack a very well-prepared Russian line north of Kherson, and they're just losing unit after unit after unit. And it's the only thing they're doing is shorten the war. Yeah. The, do you, uh, could you explain the importance of logistics in modern warfare? Because, like, you go back to, you know, it was partially the Russians that sort of uh, created, originated deep, statal, deep status, deep battle policy. The idea being that logistics were increasingly important in mechanized warfare and organized warfare compared to the past. They they were explaining the Russian failure in the decades leading up to the 1920s. Could have been a great uh, general during World War II, but of course Stalin had him whacked. So, you know, he had a lot of them whacked. That's why they, you know, got embarrassed in Finland uh, in 1941 and weren't prepared for the Germans initially. But a lot of it, like when this war started, I was like, okay, if you look at deep, deep battle policy, you can kind of predict that the Russians are going to be focused on logistics aspects, that they're probably going to want to seize the South early to get a, one, solve the Crimean water supply and the land bridge to Crimea, but also they're securing logistics from native Russia all the way through that entire region and that they secured that region effectively and that then they were going to continue to take out the logistic, the train support, other, the arm support, the other means of support for logistics purposes, and then slowly go in with these cauldrons and these uh, army, and that would be their strategy. And yet I was startled entirely in the West. I didn't even hear the word deep battle policy. It's like, did our army quit training on it? Or is everybody just lying on it, uh, lying about it in the OSINT world and the think tank world and the, in the professional military uh, of ex-military on, you know, Fox News and CBS and mainstream network. Can you explain some of the importance of logistics and mechanized warfare? And you did a good job of explaining how there's ways to measure, going back to that fact question the person had, there's ways to measure successful logistics. You can get a sense of, is Russia really running out of logistics support? Are they running out certain weapons? And what's amazing is they keep saying things about Russia that are really basically true of Ukraine. There's been massive confession through projection. Of this oh, yes, absolutely. But can you explain some of the importance of logistics in the modern warfare and how it's applied in the Ukrainian context? Well, I mean, it's it's absolutely critical, and particularly when you're dealing with a heavy war, um, which is a is a, a military, an, an army term of art, but it's a you know, heavy is as far as uh, as far as what what we're seeing in Ukraine is the you know, the, the sort of war where you're seeing a lot of tanks, a lot of uh, you know, a lot of tanks, a lot of you know, tracked artillery, um, very uh, you know, uh, sort of um, versus uh, 
you know, what we saw a lot of the time in Afghanistan was sort of you know, infantry on foot skirmishing and so on. Um, so, I mean, in, in particular, if you're dealing with the you know, heavy forces, tank forces, they're those things will suck logistics like nothing else. I mean, they, they require you have to put you have to push so much fuel and so much and so much ammunition at a uh, at particularly heavy units just to keep them keep them functioning. And, and I mean, the thing is, you can you can tell because the, the, uh, you can tell uh, all kinds of things about the Russian uh, both, I'd say, operational and strategic logistics, um, just from what they, what we can see them doing, and what they, the figures they themselves release. Um, I wrote a very, a, a very big thread um, on this last week, where um, it basically due to some uh, some admissions by the Ukrainians, we were able to, I was, I was able to determine that the the figures the Russian military themselves put out of their sort of daily press briefings, um, they're they're not, uh, those are, those are real figures. They're not, um, you know, the product of a propaganda process. They're the product of, you know, the Russian military's internal, you know, internal reporting on, Hey, this is what we did. And this is what we think our battle damage assessment for the day is. Um, it doesn't mean it's completely accurate, but it means it's what they think they themselves did. Um, and you can, you can sort of take those, take those figures and say, well, yeah, I mean, the Russians are firing somewhere between, usually somewhere between 500 and a thousand fire missions per day. We know a little bit about um, we know a little bit about what a Soviet fire mission looks like, um, and so I was able to you know do some do some back of the envelope calculations about well this is what the Russians will usually shoot at a target, and I was able to say well the Russians are probably firing eighty thousand rounds a day you know eighty you know, eighty thousand artillery shells per day at the Ukrainians. Well, lo and behold this this was an analysis I did in April, and lo and behold a couple of weeks ago a Ukrainian official came out and said well the Russians are shooting. 50,000 rounds a day at us and we're only able to shoot 5,000 back. And which I mean, completely validates the, the process I used and shows the, the disparity in the, in the, the logistical fight here, because the, the, the Ukrainians are having trouble, you know, supplying 5,000 rounds to their, their troops. And the Russians are, I mean, I calculated it down. I mean, 50,000 rounds uh, per day is every, Every Russian battalion tactical group on the front line, they're getting a convoy with a, you know, 10 trucks full of artillery ammunition every day. And they're shooting out of the Ukrainians every day, day after day. Um, and then, I mean, we can look at in the strategic side of things, which is because it's fairly, uh, fairly obvious how many, uh, how many, you know, uh, long range missiles the Russians have fired into Ukraine in the, um, just because we can a lot of the time see them launching and we can see them hitting. And they, the, the number of cruise missiles the Russians have fired is terrifying for a uh, for somebody coming out coming out of the West because the um, they've fired you know I think something like two thousand long range missiles into Ukraine and this is uh, these are numbers of you know cruise missiles which the Russians shouldn't have right and they're and people are saying are saying oh the the Russians they'll they'll run out of missiles right because that, that's something that, that NATO has always been very concerned about is in the West is running out of missiles. That's, that's been our, our, our bugaboo as far as uh, sort of the elephant in the room about any kind of large-scale war in, you know, in the U.S., in, in NATO, is we're worried we're going to run out of smart bombs. Well, the Russians, not only are they, have they fired a terrifyingly large amount of cruise missiles and ballistic missiles and so on into Ukraine, they're clearly making more of the damn things. And they're making enough of them 
fast enough that they can just continue shooting them into Ukraine apparently indefinitely. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, armchair, let me ask you one question. Uh, sources, do you, uh, your, your, your armchair, and I think that's where it comes from, armchair warring, warlording from North America. Yep. Do you have sources on the inside? I saw you tweet, uh, Gonzalo Lira, but do you have any, I say credible or reliable sources on the inside to relate to information that might not be accessible to the rest of us? So I do not personally have any, uh, I don't personally have any, any uh, sources at the front. Um, what I actually do get a lot of, uh, actually my, when the war started, my main source for news on the conflict was Twitter. These days, my main source for the news for news on the conflict is actually Telegram, um, which is a, there's a lot of, uh, of, cha- of, uh, Telegram channels, both, um, Russian language and, uh, English language, tra- and English language channels, which will sort of translate stuff that's coming out of Russian language channels. And they have all kinds of really good, like, really uh, good information on what's happening. The And so in filtering through, like, the analysis on, like, one of the things you do with logistics is just how rations and food works. Oh, yeah. And, and, how, ba- and how things like that can ultimately be essential to a functioning war uh, in a mechanized operation like we're seeing. I mean, we're seeing, like, a World War II-style battle in, in Ukraine. Uh, to a certain degree. It was more like that than in some other conflicts that we've had after World War II. Could you explain like, how that in- interacts with things like morale? How a lot of these things, that, that you know, winning the logistics battle is often the key to winning the battle, and that includes how food supply is done, how other things are done that maintain a sense of belief in success that is critical to maintaining morale, particularly for a lot of draftees and conscripts on the Ukrainian side. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so to to get into that, um, <laughs> I mean, the, and actually, this is one of the most ridiculous things that came out in, early in the conflict was people saying, "Oh, that the Russians have terrible morale," right? Which which was ridiculous because the the Russian army that went to Ukraine was it's their professional army, right? They didn't even send their conscripts into Ukraine by and large. A few of them went in, but it sort of against orders. But it was a uh, like they sent their professional army and professional soldiers are not going to, they have a, it's what, it's what we do for a living, right? So it's not a, you're never going to, you're not going to see a, a rapid morale collapse among professionals, but the, but to sort of get back to the topic at hand, I mean, sort of abstract ideological questions like, you know, how just is the cause we're fighting for? Um, th- those, those, those kind of questions, those, those go away real quick on the front line. Uh, nobody, nobody, you know, thinks to compare, you know, compare how Russia and Ukraine do uh, do on the Democratic Index uh, when they're getting shelled. Um, it's a, I mean, it being keeping morale high among the troops, and by morale, I mean you're really how, how, uh, sort of how good are the troops feeling right now? How willing are they to accomplish the mission? It's a lot of that ties into how well are they being treated and. But both how well are they being treated and uh, how how dangerous is the war for them and, and more of how dangerous for how long, right? And well, we, we've seen from the Russians, they're they're more than capable of supplying their troops. Everything we've seen out of the Russians so far indicates their troops are quite well supplied. And they're, they, they've been fighting the war thus far a, a lot of the time in a manner which does not, which is they, they've been been shelling a lot and they have been attacking occasionally 
is sort of the, the pattern of Russian operations you see in there. And uh, usually when they when they push in, they sort of they they're able to push with a lot of guys, and they're they're pretty successful. Um, well, the the Ukrainians are absolutely not getting supply for a while. Uh, we can and they're not shooting back a lot, and they're just getting plowed under with artillery constantly. And I mean that that's a and and moreover the they're because so much of the Ukrainian military at the front right now is made up of people who were pulled off the street weeks ago, um, made up of basically civilians, right? They, they get you know, pulled off the street, stuffed into a uniform, put on a truck and said, hey, you're going to the Donbass. You're, you're going to go die for Ukraine. Um, they they probably do not know their people to the left. To the, they probably barely know the people to the left and right. And they their commanders are strangers to them. And, uh, and I mean, they're, they're not, getting, not getting fed and they're getting shot. They're getting shelled constantly. And, I mean that leads to that leads to morale being very low, and it leads to you know soldiers uh, soldiers abandoning their positions or uh, mutinying. We've seen a lot of mutiny videos out of the Ukrainians, which is astonishing. Um, it can explain. Yeah. I mean, basically, whole units surrendering and and, yeah. and publicly broadcasting their surrender. And I was like, it's a, the number of people who believe Russian soldiers have bad morale. That's pure mytholo- mythological. Whenever I hear that, it's like, okay, that's someone not to take seriously. You know, the, uh, it, it's it's a ludicrous proposition. It's uh, it, it never had. I mean, at time it, it's Baghdad bobbish is what it is. Oh, yeah. know, the Americans are really uh, one in a fold right now. You know, it's just always gibberish. Um, but can you explain like like what's on Telegram is because Twitter doesn't allow it for the most part. Is whole Ukrainian units uh, surrendering and broadcasting it on TikTok? Uh, can you explain some of that? And that's really a function of. When somebody thinks they don't trust the people around them, they think they're just going to die, that they're not going to get food, they're not going to get medicine. Uh, all they're, they're just going through the living hellacious. The other reason for like the disparity, which we'll get into next, of death counts, is because one side's getting 300 to 500 sorties a day against them. One side's getting missiles hitting them every day. One of them's getting shelled at a 10 to 1 artillery ratio every day compared to the other one. That's why one's going to have a much higher death count than the other. Then you throw in untrained people, friendly fire problems and all the rest, and it's going to get much worse. But then you throw in logistics problems, lack of medicine, lack of adequate food, lack of adequate basic supplies. People living in underground underground cellars, effectively, with these fortifications they built up over the eight years. Can you explain that like that's a sign of a real break in morale and how that can collapse a, an army very quickly uh, if it has too many units uh, about it? Yeah, I mean, we've... And you see routinely these days where, um, where uh, just Ukraine units, um, often composed of, I mean, a lot of these guys are are um, either brand new conscripts or like territorial defense guys who are basically the, the last line of reserves, and they they all got mobilized and thrown to the front to plug holes in their active units, and now they're getting wiped out. Um, I mean, you see there's been tons of videos coming out of entire units making, you know literally making like a video appealing to their command. Like, Hey, we, the only thing we have are assault rifles. We haven't been, we haven't gotten supplied in two days, you know, two, three days. Uh, we're, and you're telling us to go you know, fight the Russians and they have tanks and they're shelling us constantly. And we like, we can't do this. We'll just die. And yeah, you, know, you see entire organized units doing this. And I mean that, and I mean, there's videos that have come out recently about you know Ukrainian officer shows up and tells tells you know some unit to go into the line, and they're they're arguing with the guy and filming it um, because they're like they don't want to. They're they know what's waiting for them there.
and uh, and I mean it's a go ahead. Well, I'm going to bring this up because I, I bring up good and bad comments. I personally have no sources on the front. All of the front of Ukraine is made up of conscripts. Ha ha ha. Okay, now the person might think they're making a point, and it's a legit question. So you don't, you know, you don't have. To, I don't want to load my my question with an answer. How do you verify the information you're getting? If you see a video from the Ukraine that purports to be conscripts surrendering, how do you know what language they're speaking? How do you know what they're saying? How do you know it's authentic? How do you know the date? How do you do all this independent verification to make sure that you're relying on accurate information? Well, I, so my, I mean, my method is usually I see, well, okay, is this being, this is being widely reported, right? Is this a, is this something I'm seeing multiple people saying Um, there's, and then at the same time I have any number of, uh, any number of sources I look at, you know, people who I, I know are not just blowing smoke at me. Um, they're they're out there. They're trying to report accurate news, um, and then you can sort of tie. Well, okay, so I'm getting I'm getting reports saying that these are saying that this is what's happening, and uh, so then I uh, then I mean so the the same. Then you, you sort of look for look for consistency, right? Uh, look for uh, look for okay, I'm. I'm getting told this narrative uh, often you know, from basically Russian sources. Is this narrative consistent with what's happening on the ground? And again and again and again, the uh, you know I've I've learned that you know Russian sources, which you know I can you can look up on Telegram, they're they're by and large, um, by and large they're not they're you know, pushing fairly accurate news. And and can you explain like I've been trying to explain to people that the reason why the Russian military is going to be more reliable is kind of like for the most part with exceptions the u.s army in 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 actual wars of theater theaters of war don't tend to like overtly lie a lot and they yep. actually they, they try to get at and the reason is they know that if they get caught too many times nobody's going to believe them anymore nobody's going to trust as is being leaked out and being put out in the washington post and other publications the u.s military is saying we can't trust anything the ukraine's ukrainians tell us the because of that, the reason why the Russians were going to be uh, much more reliable is because if they got caught misrepresenting things, they would damage their credibility in a wide range of domestic circles that would undermine confidence and, and uh, you know, impair morale, a whole bunch of undermine political domestic public support, undermine support in the global south that they need, China, India, amongst those countries. The, uh, and that's the same reason why the U.S. military generally, with, with the requisite caveats, uh, you can is a pretty reliable source when the U.S. itself is in a military conflict, with obvious exceptions. But like for the most part, not a lot of there weren't a bunch of ghosts of Kiev by the U.S. in the Iraqi war. There weren't snake islands. There weren't fake events. They weren't saying the Russians bombed a train station and then it turned out to be the Ukrainian missile. There weren't, you know, faking false flagging events in, in the suburbs of Kiev. I mean, Ukraine does it on such a daily basis. They had to fire their own one of their own ministers because she kept making up crazy stories uh, about things like rape and sexual assault and just horrific things that just were so fake. Even the Ukrainians were embarrassed by how fake it was. So the but the like, whereas Ukraine doesn't have that. Ukraine, I mean, as a president, that's an actor. His entire cabinet is made up of people, for the most part, who came from a Hollywood production. That's why he has Ben Stiller over. That's why he has Bono and you two singing in a cellar with him. That, that the, this is how the guy thinks. Uh, he thinks in terms of a reality TV show. And in their world, they can just make up any story they want. Whereas the Russians really can't. Like the 
Wait, like through this conflict, the first, using the same metric. Because my metric isn't what's the pedigree, what's the credential. Someone can be on the front line and be feeding you totally false information. What you want is someone that consistently what they tell you is borne out. Short-term predictability, mid-term predictability is high. The reality is the Russians, you, Drazen, have been very accurate at the short and midterm. And the other problem is, of course, the Russians don't like to really fully disclose their military strategy. It goes all the way back to you know, Maskarovka. The whole thing is to deceive the enemy. So they're, they're never going to be, in terms of forward-looking strategy, they're not going to tell you what they're really doing. They'll give you a little bit here. They've done more of that in this conflict than any conflict because they got so much blowback for being so uh, silent about what they were up to. Um, but the... Uh, can you explain that that's why these the, the, the sources that have been reliable in this conflict ha- are generally not on the Ukrainian side because the uh, the Ukrainian side has been willing to just make up any story, hope people believe it and think and figure hopefully they'll forget in 24 hours. The, the Russian and those people that have looked at the war from a less Ukrainian sympathetic perspective in the sense of military outcomes uh, have concluded otherwise. And my guess, and I'm curious what your own. My guess is Army intelligence is not doing the nonsense that's being pushed in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the blue checkmark crowd, and think tanks. That they have assessed this war as one as very differently than what they've been publicly saying. What do you think about that possibility? Well, I'd, I'd actually say that's, yeah, I think that's, that's correct. Is, and I'll tell you why I think that's correct. It's because... Like you see that you see the sort of narrative sources, right? You know the, the whole British uh, British intelligence update, the uh, you know, stuff coming out of the Institute for the Study of War, which they're basically the study for the Institute of getting ratioed on Twitter by this point. Um, the uh, what you what you, but occasionally you get a Western official who uh, sort of uh, says the quiet part out loud, and the thing that I, I think is kind of remarkable is like. If you sort as uh, I've been able to consistently, at least I think fairly consistently, get uh, you know, provide takes or a sort of my, my analysis, I think tracks fairly closely with uh, with sort of the the released internal thinking of Western intelligence and sort of where, where they where they actually think the war is going. Because occasionally you get a Western official like Jen Stoltenberg a while ago, uh, the Secretary General of NATO, he said. Because um, I, I I put out a take a while ago saying like hey the Russians have a lot of troops in reserve we haven't actually we haven't seen them actually start pushing yet and a couple of weeks later the Secretary General of NATO said the same thing the Russians had this giant army hanging out in Belgorod which is not engaged and you know really what they're doing with them mostly is just rotating troops in and out of theater from it um, they're not they're not using it as you know to open up another front but they could very easily and. Well, well, and I mean, you know, two weeks after I said this and got all kinds of of, push, of flack on Twitter, well, the, the Secretary General of NATO came out and said the same thing. So, I mean, I, I think my, given my background, sort of given where I come from and my my thought process, I think is fairly close to a lot of what um, a lot of what you know, professional soldiers in the West were telling each other behind closed doors, not for public consumption. Uh, armchair. I mean, for those of us, uh, I've been following it. I think I appreciate that the fighting is going on largely in the West. Maybe never eat, never eat. No, sorry, never the East, not the West. Uh, largely, am I totally mixed up on the map here? No, largely in the East, in the in the region between Ukraine and Russia. Maybe in the North, 
when you say that there's like when we see in the BBC 200 soldiers Ukrainian dying a day, uh, the bombing, the shelling, how, how is that happening when it doesn't? We don't really see videos of it. We don't really see any uh, real time stuff unless you're seeing it on Telegram, but not on Twitter and YouTube. Um, as far as I, I mean, how do you how do you verify that? Or what, I, I guess how, how do you, how do you verify that? And also, how do you explain where the conflict is occurring? And how is, are they shipping soldiers out to these regions? Are there civilians there? If there's 200 uh, Ukrainian soldiers dying a day, how many civilians are getting killed every day? A multi-pronged question, but uh, elaborate, it, it please. Part of that, like one of the reasons why this conflict was going to take long, I think you put end of July as your prediction very early on, was the degree of fortifications. Um, I mean, the fortifications along the Donbass border that they'd been building for eight years, and this even has a further history. Russia, all the way back, was scared about this region of, of being an attack region. And, of course, they experienced it during World War II. So they had actually instituted fortifications and at least had roadmapped out geographically where to put fortifications to protect against the border. So they, they had the benefit of that. They did it throughout the Soviet Union days. And then Ukraine has had eight years to build fortifications. And, like, you looked at the maps, they had hundreds of fortifications. And so two, uh, two things on that it's, uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, Viva's question as well. Can you also add, you know, what kind of what are fortifications? You did a long sort of Twitter thread on what fortifications are, where they're strong, where they're vulnerable and how that has played a major role into why this war has gone the length it has and has gone the way it has. Yeah, I mean, the. Uh, one of the big things the Russians have really had to, to crack through is the fact that the Ukraine has been digging into, digging into the Donbass for eight years. Um, and also uh, the Russians had to deal with, you know, Soviet era fortifications uh, um, because the Soviets were nothing if not prepared. Uh, they, they dug in the cities of Ukraine um, during the cold war because they were concerned, like, what if, what if we lose the war in Germany? Right. And, and NATO attacks us. And they're they're marching through Ukraine. We need to dig it. We need to you know, put fortifications around all these cities. Um, so that there's you know, you know, old fortifications around a lot of cities in Ukraine or I mean, around Kiev. And there are plus the Ukrainians have you know, since 2014 been digging crazy stuff uh, in the Donbass. I mean, not not just you know trenches, but tunnels, uh, all kinds of bunkers. And they're they're well prepared. And also they have a I mean, even at the start of the war, they had a ton of troops in the region. Um, you know, I think about 100,000 uh, hanging out in the Donbass region in a pretty small area. And get, going into that is militarily very difficult. Um, the Russians are just just now starting to make a, make a decent amount of progress in the uh, punching into the deep Donbass, punching into sort of the, the remaining regions of the Donbass. Um, I mean, as far as uh, as far as your your point about well, uh, sort of con conferring what's happening on the ground. I mean, what, one there's there's a decent amount of comment which just gets posted on Telegram and all all kinds of um, and uh, some other stuff. Which uh, yeah, they they have video footage. Yeah, yeah. Ukraine has banned it in Ukraine, yeah. so that's why you're not seeing it being published by the Ukrainian side. But it's where it's coming out and leaking out is on Russian speaking Telegram, sometimes yeah. from Ukrainian sources. But that that's where it's uh, you're, you're seeing it. And there's people who just spend all day aggregating it. You know, the uh, there's additional people that help confirm and corroborate this. People like Defense Politics Asia, uh, who does a fun little YouTube uh, channel that breaks it down each day. 
and I've seen, I've watched, you know, like Defense Politics Asia, pretty independent guy, no bone in the fight. But you've seen him look at the same sourcing on a day-to-day basis, try to track the war using traditional open source intelligence that wasn't politically contaminated like the blue checkmark OSINT crowd was. And he's come to the same conclusions over time that you and Jacob Drazen and others were predicting much earlier. Uh, and I think the advantage you and Drazen have is your military background, your ability to filter through what's realistic, what's not, what's likely, what's not, how to corroborate information. Okay, if this is true about logistics, then it should show up here. If this is true about fortifications, it should show up here. If this is true about desertion rate, it should show up here. And where it's shown up and where it's not. And it's just overwhelmingly, the, the Ukraine side has just been full of crap. There's no other way to put it. They just They, they remind me, I'll agitate a different crowd in the chat. They remind me of uh, Hamas and the Palestinians. That, that every time you turn around, they're lying about something. You know, nine times out of ten. That that's how I came partially to my conclusion about the Israeli conflict. I learned I just couldn't trust anything the Palestinians said because within a week, it, half of it would be proven false. Ukraine's yeah. been worse. I think Ukraine right. is the worst. Like I mean, it's like Egypt during the Six Days War. We're on the radio. They're saying, oh, we're taking out the Israelis. We're whooping them. We're sending them back to the sea. Da, da, da. And all of a sudden, all the Egyptians wake up and they're like, hold on a second. Our, our troops are walking back into our city, look, looking all beat up. Uh, how did this happen? Uh, you know, only Nasser could dodge that with his brilliant political move to resign and thus create a resurrection of his career and the rest. But, but I mean, this is, is this the worst you've seen, in a, especially with think tank crowd, blue checkmark crowd, OSINT crowd? I mean, on, I'm on these sub stacks where they are still sending me delusional stuff. You know, tomorrow, Ukraine will win. Uh, Russia's about to fail. Putin has cancer. It's all about to collapse. And it's like, this is ludicrous nonsense. We look like idiots. The UK Ministry of Defense will never be trusted again in a war conflict because they say the dumbest, most inane stuff. Of course, they're talking about taking on the Russians yesterday, the new general. Somebody tell the Brits they haven't been an empire in a century, and it took us saving their rears twice, and that wasn't even against the Russians. That was just against the Germans. So the, they're going to whoop Russia. I mean, come on. That's why Lavrov is laughing to BBC and saying, bring it on. Bring it on, Brits. And that's why they're putting on Russia, you know, you know, one little, little tsunami weapons in UK underwater. Um, so, I mean, it's but have you been surprised at the scale and the scope of just outright crazy false story after false story after false story from Ukraine, either in the Ukraine war supporters? Uh, on the Ukrainian side, not only from Ukraine, but from so much of the Western respected credentialed community. And I think it's a good bridge. You also had a good Twitter thread about the problem with military credentialism. Could you explain part of that in the context of this conflict particularly? Well, the <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you, I've, I haven't just been astonished. That's why I decided to go hot on Twitter to begin with. Um, I Because I was just seeing institutions are respected like a, the institute for the study of war think tank i followed for a decade now um they they've been covering the iraq conflict forever and i they were one of my main sources of news on what was what was going on in iraq and then i this war kicks off and they're they have done nothing but it's nothing but psyop nonsense coming out of their feed um it's they're they're just pushing whatever the ukraines are, are pushing themselves and the ukrainians are lying um and i, I mean every it's, and it's a, uh, yeah, like the, the number of credentialed, credentialed people, like real professionals, like retired generals, 
Um, I mean, H.R. McMaster, I think, has had, said some crazy things, and I, I used to respect the man. Um, I mean, uh, this, uh, this Australian fellow, Mick Ryan, who blocked me on Twitter after I did a thread pointing out why his reasoning was insane. Um, but like, like real, g- genuinely respectable people have just taken their reputations and, and burned them to ashes with their willingness to just push the Ukraine party line. And, and it, it's, it's astonishing. And it's to tie that back into your, your point about credentialism. Like you have a lot of people in the West who are, who have incredible credentials, impeccable credentials, um, who should be great commentators on the war and who should be providing like real analysis. And they're not, and you can immediately tell they're not because it doesn't, it doesn't comport with what's happening on the ground. Uh, a lot of people in the chat are asking in your estimate, like we're talking about uh, Ukrainian casualties, what casualties, and I say fatalities, are the Russians taking? And I'm also, um, you know what, I'll, say, I'll save the Ukrainian civilian casualty for after this. But what do you think, what are your estimates? What do you think is going on with Russian uh, fatalities and casualties? Uh, I mean, I think, I think overall Russian fatalities at this point are somewhere around 10,000. Um, the, the DPR actually re- just releases what their casualty figures are. Um, the, the Donetsk People's Republic, the Lugansk People's Republic, they, they don't, they're not quite as good at reporting, but they, they also put their casualties out sometimes. And the, the Russian MOD has put their own casualties out a few times. And actually, the, the BBC checked behind them a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the, the BBC did a study and found like 3,500 uh, Russian, Russian soldiers have been killed um, who they were able to track down on, track down on social media. Um, that was, you know, for, for the whole war up until June, basically, uh, mid-June. And so, I, I mean, if you sort of put these put these figures together, it comes out to about 10,000, which is no joke. It's a lot of soldiers killed. Um, is it nearly as many as the Ukrainians have suffered? No. Um, as far as the, the civilian, uh, as far as the civilian side goes, I believe by the last, the last figure I came out, I heard out of the... Uh, Latest figure I've seen is that that the UN uh, sort of UN monitors have seen something like four thousand civilians killed, um, which is no joke. It's a lot of civilians. Um, on the other hand, I mean, if it, people out there are claiming with a it, and actually this is a big talking point. People out there are claiming with completely straight face, like the Russians are flattening cities, they're committing genocide. Like it's like four thousand civilian. Like that's that's like invasion of that's like I would need to look at IraqBodyCount.com, but that's like invasion of iraq 2003 numbers um and no i don't think anybody ever accused the united states of committing genocide because we bombed baghdad a few times they've 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 admitted it's a quarter of a million civilians that died through the iraq war that's nobody nobody criticizes them i want to bring this up i want to address it irene waldron i'm not trying to put you on blast but this is the discussion we're going to have i don't understand why viva and barnes are condoning russian destruction and killing of ukraine and its civilians it's the Russians threatening nuclear weapons if they start losing. I'm not sure about the second part of that. I could just tell you about the first part. Nobody's actually condoning anything here. What I think, and, and armchair, correct me if I'm wrong. What we are all saying right now is that this is a stupid war that would have been resolved uh, locally, but for the involvement of the international community, the Ben Stillers, the other guy uh, who went down there to shoot a documentary. I forget his name. Uh, you know, playing a proxy war with other people's soldiers, other civilians, where they don't have to have their soldiers killed, they don't have to have their civilians killed, the West treating the Ukraine like a tool in its proxy war against Russia, where otherwise this would have been resolved 
probably the way it ought to have been if Zelensky had respected his election campaign promises to negotiate a peace in the East. Am I wrong? Um, uh, and just, I, I'm not condoning anything. I think this, the Ukrainian civilians are the casualties caught in the crosshairs. But is anything I just said wrong? If so, why? Well, I would say it's a bifurcated issue. So on the one hand, like tonight's discussion is just the military analysis of the war. But what this question reveals is the reason why Americans in the West are not getting honest information. It's interpreted that if you raise questions about the Ukrainian propaganda, you are pro-Russia and anti-Ukraine. No, well, that, that all you're doing is giving honest, accurate, accurate information from the front. Indeed, my view is you can be on the Ukrainian side and be anti-Russian, and it does not help your cause to lie to yourselves in the world about what's happening militarily. It, it doesn't at all. When you become so unreliable that, that U.S. government military officials on your side are leaking to the press, they can't trust a single word you say, that's not good for you if you're in the Ukrainian position. So independent of the, the problem is people want to confuse and conflate uh, the support for the war, either side, with whether you embrace propaganda or honest news. And my argument is no matter which side you're on, you should embrace honest news. And that's part of the problem. The second question is totally false. The, the West has wanted to propagate this myth that Russia will use nuclear weapons. Putin is the most restrained in this regard. So frankly, that's just reality. It's, it isn't Russians floating in, it isn't Russian media, Russian think tank people, Russian politicians, Russian diplomats floating the idea of using nuclear weapons in this war. It's Americans and people in the West who are doing so. The, that's who's been saying, well, maybe we could win a limited nuclear war. Maybe we shouldn't be so scared of a nuclear war. Maybe, a nu- you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the, uh, and in fact, the Western common belief is that, I mean, the reason why they're playing the games they're playing with Kaliningrad is they don't believe Putin ever will use uh, nuclear weapons. They don't think he'll use his tsunami weapons, um, you know, weapons that can induce tsunamis on a range of coasts, um, things like that. Uh, now, that's a big gamble to take and a stupid gamble to take, but... At least from, you know, like to, that comment reveals the problem with American and Western news coverage. When you associate saying anything is not going the way you want with being on the side of your adversary, that's your that's the flaw of the chatter. That's the flaw of the community that believes that you, you should always seek honest information because without it, you will never be able to achieve whatever side you're on. Yeah, I mean. I think my bottom line on this is that the, I mean, this is a war which the, so I mean, I'm an American, right? We're all, I mean, you're American, Viva's Canadian. This is something which, the way I see it, this is, this is a problem between Russia and Ukraine. And given the, again, given the uh, significant Yeo Yahtzee problem uh, that, you know, we can, that you, uh, we, we've seen all over the Ukraine state, um, I think this is a problem that the Russians and Ukrainians need to sort out between themselves. There is no American national interest. Ukraine isn't our ally. This is a, they're, they're a charity case. This is, there's no American national interest in the Ukraine. Um, Schmeyoschlabs. <laughs> Someone said, I'm joking, biolabs. People are going to say the, the Ukraine is an ally only in so much as it is um, a new stepping foot of NATO into Eastern Europe. So it's an ally... Yeah. It's an it's a, it's an involuntary ally, and, and, and to go further into this, what what why, and to go further into this, what why are, I, why is the establishment in the U.S. and the U.K. so 
incredibly willing to, I mean, I, I call it a neoliberal Russian killing project on my Twitter all the time, right? It's a, it's a why is the establishment in the US and the UK so incredibly willing to throw guns and money into a country that's at war with Russia? Um, and, and, and by the way, I also mentioned this, uh, throw guns and money in violation, and is what, what I thought, what I'm pretty sure is uh, a violation of federal law. You know, the, uh, if you've ever heard of the Leahy Amendments, um, because there's all kinds of dirty units in the Ukrainian army who would, should not be eligible for U.S. military aid. And yet suddenly all these people have javelins. Um, if, if this was any other, any U.S. You know, military, pro, if this was you know, any other country, there would be alarm bells ringing all over the Pentagon. Like, what, why are these dirty units getting getting all of our weapons? Ukraine, Pentagon doesn't even care where our weapons are going. They're just shoveling them off trucks on the whoever's willing to grab them. And yeah, it's it's been a huge arms laundering operation, a huge uh, money laundering operation too, yeah. uh, and a lot of other things. One of the other things you've been pointing out, like what's interesting about this, is right now it looks like aspects of the Pentagon are concerned with where this conflict is going because objectively they, I think they always knew Ukraine couldn't win despite the billions that they justified spending lots of training and arms on. But the, the other aspect is you, some Ukrainian military can't keep their mouth shut about how poor some of these weapons actually are. And you, and you also do separate Twitter threads on just certain weapons and their utility or lack of utility. And what has seemed to come through to me in aspects of this conflict is that it's highlighted how many weapon systems we may have that are about what lobbyists lobbied for, not about what's actually good for the U.S. military use. And we've seen that exposed in the javelins and some other weapons. The Ukrainian conflict has been a bad ad for aspects of the military-industrial complex. Some of these weapons don't work anywhere near what we claim they could be. I remember when they sent over certain drones uh, you know, that had you know, cute little names attached. That was going to be a game-changer. Then the howitzers are going to be a game changer. Then the next rocket launcher is going to be a game changer. And you've been identifying the practical issues of transporting them there, the amount of weapons, the way in which they work with current systems, whether there's enough training to be able to employ them as being one list of problems. But a lot of uh, some of these weapons don't appear to be well suited for this particular conflict. And some of them maybe not as well as advertised. Uh, can you uh, how much is it lobbying has corrupted this process? At both in terms of what weapons got sent and what weapons got developed in the United States versus other factors. Well, I, I mean, I guess I wouldn't necessarily pin it on lobbying ahead of time because I mean, I, I think our weapons are pretty good, right? Um, okay. But the the problem is that while our weapons are pretty good, they're not they're not game changers, right? There, there is no technical solution to a geostrategic problem, which that, that that's the entire problem that that's our entire. I mean, that's that almost sums up our policy in Ukraine since since I mean the Trump administration, um, which is we're we're trying to have a tactical solution to a geo to a geopolitical problem in Russia by saying we'll just give Ukraine some javelins. That's a magic wand. They'll kill Russian tanks. It's an anti tank missile like any other anti tank missile. You know, there's the Ukrainians have plenty of anti tank missiles. Some of which are probably much better than javelin because um, that that what that particular missile has not really performed very well in the battlefield. Um, this war and uh, the and with every every one of these systems they send over, and and there's there's, uh, you know, no, I'm still saying not very uh, not very intelligent or sophisticated commentators um, go, going out there and saying you know these all these weapon systems are going to somehow change the game. 
Well, I used to be a professional soldier, all right? There's, there are not a lot of capabilities you can give a modern army that are actually going to dramatically affect the battlefield. Um, Why is that? Well, it's, uh, I mean, just a, I, I wrote a whole thread on this. It's because the, I mean, modern armies spend, they both have so many countermeasures to everything that's going on in the battlefield. And they spend so much of their time, I mean, most uh, you know, modern armies, when they're on the battlefield, they're camouflaged in the terrain. If they're moving, they're moving from cover to cover. You're not going to, you're only going to see, you know, even if they're on the attack, you're only going to see a couple of infantrymen at a time, maybe a tank moving from a piece of cover to another, because armored vehicles use cover like infantrymen do, really. Um, and uh, meanwhile, you're getting shelled, right? Uh, and it's a it's a situation in which you know you can have arbitrarily sophisticated weapons or arbitrarily lethal weapons, but you can't. You're not going to see enough of the enemy army to to be able to use them effectively, or to be able to really uh, kill them faster than what you already have. Because right? one thing is fascinating is watching a lot of the videos that come out, and I try to avoid a lot of the war porn stuff. Like yeah. when people were saying they were making up allegations about dead Ukrainians, the response of like on a Russian on, on Telegram on various channels as they started documenting the dead bodies of Ukrainian soldiers. But I, I had no interest in seeing that. The but what is but showing the actual military conflict's been interesting because it's what you describe. I think the image in our heads is still like old armies meeting on the battlefield and you expect to see like fifty tanks running in and you know the infantry behind and the air force above. And instead, what you're seeing is like house to house urban warfare, two guys behind a building going here, then trying to get in there, then trying to get in here. And, uh, and, it, does, and it shows really more the importance of the quality in certain respects of our, or the quantity, at least, but of logistical support. And then the quality of the soldier seemed to me that those were going to be the two strongest factors ultimately in the conflict. What are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah I mean, I think you're I think you're absolutely correct. The almost the most remarkable thing about this conflict is how little has changed since world war II. <laughs> like it's, I'd say that the big change is, is almost that there's very good anti-aircraft missiles these days. So, air, so I mean, air forces are almost less effective than they were in world war II, Right. Um, it's almost like that, that sort of game changing element of, you know, the, the massive, you know, U S army air corps or U S army air force, you know, swooping out on the Wehrmacht and just devastating them as they're trying to, trying to, uh, counterattack us um that's i mean a, a lot of that has gone away because anti-aircraft missiles these days are so lethal and uh just sort of the air battle has changed significantly with missiles but as far as the the ground fight i mean there's not a lot of i mean and particularly with this uh just to give you an example on um, with these uh one of the one of the things which actually has sort of had a, a lot of an impact is you know there's a lot of small drones on the battlefield these days. You know, a little little pocket drone you can put it up, and that you can observe with that. The, the, those are those are for observation purposes. Those those yeah. those are no no other, and they have a limited range. I mean, I know this from drones. I mean, you're lucky if you get a kilometer, let alone three. This is just to survey near enemy position. Yeah, so you can sort of you know put that up over your overhead and look around for the enemy near you, and that's that's a level of overhead surveillance the armies aren't really used to, um, and. So that that changes sort of how you how you think about hey how am I going to move through the terrain a little bit, but at the same time um, there's people are saying oh well all these kamikaze drones are going to be uh, they're they're going to be some game changer. Well, there's really no difference between spotting somebody using using a, a commercial drone and shooting artillery at them versus spotting them with a kamikaze drone and kamikaze the drone into them. Right? 
and you have armies here who are already used to this sort of drone-infested environment, well, just because some of these drones have grenades on them or whatever doesn't really change anything that much. <laughs> yeah, because that's what I was going to ask. What was interesting to me was the CSI has had a recent conference. Yeah. And aside for a lot of delusional talk, you know, that the Russian elite was clearly going to overthrow Putin just next week, you know, that kind of language, yeah. um, pretending a wide range of things. But what was interesting is one of the guys who's an ex-military guy, uh, ex-Defense Department guy, uh, was predicting that the effect of this war would be more marketing, more support uh, for various forms of drones. But he was including armed drones, and I thought, if anything, that that aspect has not been promoted by the surveillance. Yes, using them as a method of bombing someone or hitting someone. The kamikaze drones. What do we call the fame? The one in the U.S. that when we sent over is all going to be a big game changer. Uh, is that the the great? Oh, the the switchblade, the switchblade. Yes, I mean they come up with cute names, right? Switchblade yeah. is going to cut through to Ukraine just like that. You know, is that kind of well, that didn't turn out. I mean, the Russians just like that, man, eh, not so much. Um, how much do you think what you've seen? What weapons out of or what? Uh, and just in general, what lessons can military folks learn from how this Ukrainian conflict has unfolded? I mean, I, I would say the the big. Uh, I said that there's really two two big takeaways, uh, maybe three. First big takeaway is pocket drones are going to be with us for the foreseeable future, and those like if you're operating in the modern day, you need to have a you need to have a drone operator, right? And you need to be able to you know fly commercial drones and have a lot of them up, and that's as far as the, the big developments out of this war, this, that's the biggest one is. You know, little commercial DJI drones; those are those are big. Um, the other, uh, I mean, beyond that, it's uh, I mean, beyond that. Um, there's the yeah. Beyond that, it's uh, in, is don't expect. Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, beyond that, that's that's the big game changer I can think of. Um, I mean, I mean it's, how it's much has really, there been a surprise at how? A lot of the other weapon systems have not really changed things. Like what weapon systems took a setback in in the impression of the military because of this war? Well, I'll tell you what is actually really taking a setback is heavy, uh, heavy high altitude armed drones. Which for some reason, people the Ukrainians they they brought these they bought these drones off the Turks called Bayraktars, right? Which it's basically a a little thing about the size of a Cessna. Um, they, they could hang a few little glide bombs off of, and they thought they were going to defeat the Russian army with the most effective integrated air defense system on earth, right? An army that can shoot, that can kill, you know, F-35, oh, yeah, an army that can, you know, kill, yeah, it can, you know, kill F-35s, maybe. I mean, uh, we haven't, there's never been a, a well, you know, may, there might there might have been, because the Israelis have been flying F-35s into a, uh, into Syria, and the Russians have certainly been getting getting radar looks at those things. But like, if you look at the performance between an F thirty five and you know supersonic, stealthy, highly maneuverable, and there's you know missile systems that the Russians have designed to take those things down from hunt from a hundred a hundred miles away, right? Um, you know, you look at like an S four hundred, and I mean, and and yeah. An entire layered air defense system designed to kill the most, uh, designed to you know kill things that are small, fast, stealthy, highly maneuverable, um, and to kill them in large numbers to you know keep the keep Russian troops safe as they you know push through the Fulda Gap, um, and then the, then you have 
manufacturers and arms dealers saying, hey, we're going to put up something with the performance of a Cessna 170 and uh, it's going to defeat the Russian army. Like, no, these things just got shot down in droves and have had very little effect. Um, they had a little bit of success early in the war when everything was, the Russians were just pushing in and things were sort of chaotic on the ground. They hadn't quite gotten their air defense network up and also the, the Russians were sort of, you know, working at their kinks. Um, and so there, there could be some, some stuff sort of slipping through the cracks. But I mean, the, it, it's gotten bad to the point where the Ukrainian government is not, is just not even, um, is uh, they're, they stopped buying them. And they're, they're, the only thing they use those things for is they fly them at very high altitude, far behind their own lines. And they use them to observe, they use them to observe targets like uh, way in the distance. And that's, that's the only thing they use them for. Now, the other thing is like, you look at now the sort of sequence of conflicts of NATO, that NATO has been involved in at some level. Second Iraq war, Syria, Libya, you could argue aspects of Somalia, uh, Afghanistan, now Ukraine. This will be a long litany of losing. It's not achieving the political objectives, ultimately, that they sought out at the beginning of a conflict. What does this mean for sort of the perception of military power of NATO, uh, if any, if uh, they lose in Ukraine as well? I don't think it's going to do anything good for it. Um, I mean, coming off the heels of Afghanistan, it's a... Uh, I mean, Afghanistan at least was, you know, remote. We could sort of make the decision, well, we decided to leave. Well, NATO has given Ukraine a blank check practically as far as, I mean, God, the Poles have given them over uh, like 232 tanks. A significant, like NATO countries have been just emptying out their national armament stockpiles to give weapons to Ukraine. And what's probably going to happen out of this is Ukraine is going to lose anyways, and they're going to make significant territorial concessions. And all of this equipment that NATO donated is going to be in Ukrainian, in Ukrainian or possibly Russian scrapyards for, you know, getting sold for scrap over the next 50 years, depending on scrap metal prices. Well, <laughs> or, or, or it's going to fall into the hands of other uh, militias, criminal organizations who are going to use it for nefarious purposes. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, th this was astonishing to me. It was in Syria. Uh the United States refused point blank for the entire Syrian insurgency to, to supply the rebels there with Stinger missiles, right? With any kind of anti-aircraft capability, because we were terrified this stuff was going to end up in the hands of some terrorist group who would shoot at airliners. We've given thousands of Stinger systems to the Ukrainians. Thousands. So, so much to the point it significantly depleted our national stockpile of Stingers. And with no idea who's using it, with no idea if this stuff is getting immediately taken to the Middle East and sold, right? It's it's like the the, the entire set of standards that go around, uh, the, the entire set of standards of that have gone into like our decision making to arm people over the last for generations just got thrown completely out the window in Ukraine. We're going to be paying the price for this for decades. How do you uh, see the military conflict ending in Ukraine? I uh, still see like the Donbass being over at the end of July. Uh, you know, the, you know, what I've said from the get go is I thought it would always be South Ossetia plus so that it would definitely be the Donbass. They would secure a land bridge to Crimea and they would secure water supply to Crimea. And then the only question would be if it went a certain way, they may add historically Russian areas, Kharkiv and Odessa, 
secure the Sea of Asof, secure the, the Black Sea. That's also all the farm-rich areas. That's all the industrial areas. That's all the oil-rich areas. That's the mineral-rich areas. And just leave rump Ukraine, you know, from Kiev to Lviv for the Poles to come in and try to reconquer like they did during the Polish-Lithuanian Empire days. But uh, where do you see it ending militarily? Uh, and, and what do you think the timetable practically is in that capacity? And how hard or easy is it for Russia to expand to a Kharkiv front or an Odessa front? Well, I'd, I'd say the, the end state of the war right now is in the hands of Ukraine. Um, it's the, the war is going to end when the Ukrainians decide they want it to end. Um, I think sort of the, the IG sort of the, the existing lines plus the entirety of the Donbass would be an acceptable uh, an acceptable end of war condition for Russia if they got you know certain political guarantees out of Ukraine. Um, the Ukrainian government thus far seems very intransigent. So I would not be surprised in the slightest if after the, the Russians polish off the Donbass, I've said previously, I thought this would be the end of July. Um, judging by their current rate of march, although they did make some very significant gains recently, this might be more like the end of August, maybe going into September. Um, but that's, there's a, um, this is a, making for, making detailed timetable predictions in, in for military operations is very, very difficult. And even when you're planning the operation yourself, oh my God, it's, you never hit your timetable. So um, in particular, when I don't have insight into what the Russians are themselves planning to do. <laughs> but um, I, I mean, I'd say if, I'd say if Ukraine does not sue for peace after the Donbass is secured, then, I mean, the Russians are already, there's already word on the street, the Russians are starting to push into Kharkov. Um and so I think uh, Donbass goes, then Donbass, if the Donbass goes and the Ukrainians don't want to talk Turkey, then probably we're looking at Kharkov, Zaporozhye, and then uh, probably looking at pushing on Odessa. How long would that take? And what would be some of the, uh, what is the probability that they would be successful if they tried, if the Russians tried to take Odessa militarily? Well, I mean, considering this would be a, a, condi- a state in which the, Russians have already taken the Donbass. They've already destroyed the Ukrainian army in the Donbass. They would have, this point, by this point, likely taken Kharkov and destroyed significant Ukrainian forces there. Um, by that point, they could probably quite easily mass a very large number of troops and into the Kherson region and push onto Odessa. And I think that's well within their capabilities. Um, the, I, I mean, I think the, the entire discussion about, well, did the Russians have the troops for this? Did the Russians have the, the equipment for this? That, that's that's a decision the Russians themselves can make, because they have the, I mean, the, the Russians have been, you know, by and large fighting this war with their professional army and, you know, volunteers. And if, if the Russians need a bigger army to do something, the Russians need a bigger army for their victory condition, they'll get a bigger army. Thus far, they haven't done that. And that, that's sort of the, 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 one of the bottom lines of the war for me is the Russians have a vast degree of national power a vast ability to generate power that hasn't been tapped yet. And Ukraine is already scraping the barrel. And so, I'm, I mean, the if the war is progressing in a certain way, it's because the Russians want it to progress in a certain way. Before we get into the 14 starred super chats or comments that I have, uh, the Robert uh, and Armchair, you'll feel this one respectively. The recent, I guess it's not so recent now, the um, cluster bombing uh, incident at the train station. 
Has there been any more information, uh, new details to um, identify who who launched that, where it came from, who's responsible? Last we heard, it was Russia. Has there been any news on that um, catastrophe? Oh, the cluster so, bombing definitely came from the Ukrainians. Uh, they, they hit yeah. uh, they hit the Netsk, and they've used it repeatedly. The question is whether it's legality, which Armchair talked about. So the uh, uh, what about the Ukrainians using cluster bomb, cluster bombs, which they've done repeatedly throughout the conflict, going back to prior to this war, or this part of the war, um, but uh, and the legal aspects, because you had kind of a different opinion on aspects of that. Yeah, I mean, as far as the, um, I think that this the specific incident you were talking about was the uh, the missile attack on the Kramatorsk train station. Oh, that was um, one, but it's the, also the recent one where the, it kind of didn't even fully go off. But it's the Ukrainian solution to getting Western military aid that had extended range was let's let's bomb the residential areas of Donetsk. Uh, Oh, yeah. I've been banging the drum about this for the last week was the and as near as I can tell what the Ukrainians are trying to do is they're trying to go. They're trying to get the Russians to shift forces from right now. They're fighting the north of the Donbass. They're trying to get the Russians to shift forces away from dealing from. Uh, rolling that area up, and they're trying to get them to send them south, um, basically to to uh, push Ukrainian artillery out of the range of Donetsk, Donetsk City. Because um, the way the 2014 ceasefire line worked out was Donetsk, Donetsk City was right on the front line. And over the last week, the Ukrainians have been shelling Donetsk at random with Western-provided artillery, like French and American howitzers, French and American ammunition, uh, firing into you know, random shelling, right? Now, yeah, residential what, neighbors, things that have like, no military objective whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, law of armed conflict. If there's you know troops part, if there's troops in a civilian area, you can shoot at that. You can't just shoot at civilians. There's been no suggestion that any of the stuff the Ukrainians are hitting in Donetsk is military targets. They're just randomly showing the city. It's a war crime, and the yeah, and I mean the only the only reason I can see they're doing this is to attempt to go to the Russians and the the DPR into attacking them. And uh, pulling troops out, pulling troops out of the north, or out of the north, um, out of sort of the Lysychansk, Severodonetsk area, and uh, to um, to trying to push them out of range of Donetsk, and it's it's horrifying to me that we're we're seeing we're not only we're seeing this done, but we're seeing it done with Western with weapons we gave them. Now, what about the legal aspects of using cluster munitions? Uh, well, yeah. So there's a there's a, a there's a uh, international treaty on cluster munitions banning effects. Um, and Russia is not a signatory. Although Russia hasn't used that many of them. I know that they've used a few, but there there have been some reports of it that do by and large they're just using unitary munitions. Um, Ukraine has been uh, used them on a number of occasions despite being a Ukraine joined the Convention on Cluster Munitions, I want to say in 2006, and they should have destroyed their entire stockpile in 2010. And actually, kind of the sketchy thing about this is France is also a member of the Convention on Cluster Munitions, and uh, and they should have destroyed their stockpile some time ago. And yet somebody was looking through the shipping manifest of like ammunition the French had given to Ukraine, and they found cluster 155 millimeter shells the French should have destroyed a decade ago on a shipping manifest going to Ukraine. <laughs> It's like, eh. well, it, we'll that that. how much of this conflict is actually being exploited for the purposes of repurposing expired stockpiled weapons uh, in Western countries to ship them out there? I don't know whatever tax benefit you get, but just to reuse 
uh, count it off as support and let them dispose of old, uh, useless weaponry that sits in the West? I think that's happening to an extent. Um, I mean, certainly there's some of the Western aid that's going in as, you know, governments that are pro-Ukraine for whatever reason are genuinely drawing down their actual military stockpiles. Like, I mean, we've given Ukraine some like a third of our javelins so far. Like, it's, it's an incredible donation. Um, on the other hand, you see stuff like, you know, Dutch M113s uh, getting sent over. There's a, a lot of really clanky Western equipment, which is showing up uh, showing up in Ukraine by onesies and twosies, which is very not confidence inspiring. <laughs> well, well I, mean, I mean, God, the, the Portuguese, the, this, is, this, this one takes the cake. The Portuguese are giving the Ukrainians like a battery, like six or seven of, of M114 155 millimeter howitzers. This is a this is a World War II era piece. If you look, this is like the M1 Howitzer 155 millimeter, you know, designed in 1939, which the the Portuguese army is sending over to Ukraine. Be like, we're supporting you guys. It's... <laughs> the other thing you you had mentioned was like people would suggest like I've told people this really is uh, a NATO war at a certain level, not formally, not legally, not officially, but that you had pointed out that. To a large degree, in terms of uh, uh, armaments, even you could say uh, professionally trained soldiers in aspects of it, uh, with some war experience. Like you compared Ukraine and Poland and pointed out that Ukraine actually probably had a better army at the beginning of this conflict than Poland did. Could you explain some of that? Uh, uh, oh, yes. Yeah. So this is another talking point that goes around routinely is uh, because the the war starts and uh, sort of the OSINT, BROSINT enterprise uh, sort of gets the, the, all the talking points go out like, oh, the Russians are doing terribly. They're, they're not. But uh, sort of the, uh, and then you see NATO countries being like, oh yeah, well, well, Ukraine isn't even in NATO, but NATO could do so much better. We're so much stronger. We just, we just stop the Russians immediately. And then you look, you look at what NATO's actual order of battle looks like. And Poland is a, is for a NATO country extremely strong. I think it has the largest army in NATO. And their army is like a third the size of Ukraine's. And their equipment is not any better. It's most it's like mostly old Soviet stuff, which they had back from when they were in the Warsaw Pact, and like some new tanks. And that's not remotely con and th these people were they were like people unironically saying, like, oh yeah, the Poles could just march to Moscow tomorrow and it wouldn't be a problem. It's like, you people are on drugs. <laughs> Uh, okay, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna get through these super chats so that people can uh, get some answers. In as much as they're short answers, um, just being cool, he should watch Sabaton videos. All songs are true. Where events? All, this is Sabaton. This is heavy metal uh, discussion again. Is he going back to the service in Jag Corp? That's not a super chat, but I wanted to ask you that one. Uh, no, I'm not going back to the military. I, I sort of toyed with the idea when I first went to law school, and I'm like, I like being a civilian. So. <laughs> Uh, let's hear. Armchair, did you see Zelensky's address to Canadian university students via Freeland today? It was incredulous. Uh, these guys have zero facts. I've addressed that one by showing you the sources. At the very least, if you, if you have a disagreement, specific statements to contradict, not vagaries. What do you guys think about the U.S. Pentagon not letting Ukraine get the MQ-1C drones? I think the Pentagon is afraid that it would be used to attack Russian soil. IMO, what is the MQ-1C drone? 
So the, the MQ1C, and I did another throw on this actually, because this was the latest game changer. Um, the MQ1C is a predator with a, another another sensor system on it. You know, the old 2001 Hellfires in Afghanistan predator. Uh, the Russians would shoot it down the same way they've shot down every other attack drone that's been tried to flown, get flown around there. I think a Pentagon might be a little bit worried about getting embarrassed. Uh, let's see what we got here. Do your veterans agree with your conclusions? Uh, well, I just judging by the people who talk to me on Twitter, I'd say it's a, there's a, a lot of them do. All right, we got this. Do you and Robert? I guess maybe you want to field this one if you know it as well. Do you know that Ukraine destroyed a huge corn warehouse in Mariupol? The corn could have fed many people. It was Ukraine, not Russia. I haven't heard about this particular incident. I haven't heard about this particular one, but Ukraine has been doing this all. I mean, they've been trying to blow up dams to, uh, you know, basically drown their own population. They now this is a common tactic, but they've blown up all kinds of their own bridges all over the country. Now, this did at the, the like one strategic issue that was a hot debate early. Uh, and I was wondering your your uh, theory on this or your points on this is sort of our, our last question before wrapping up uh, was what was Russia doing going towards Kiev? Because I saw three different theories promoted. The main one from the Brosent crowd and the rest is, yes, Russia's going in to conquer Ukraine. To, uh, they're going to win in 72 hours. And, and, oh, they didn't. That means it's a devastating blow for Russia and is a big failure. There's that theory. Second theory popular within the Russian world was this is a feint. This is a feint uh, designed to shackle. This was their official excuse afterwards. Shackle Ukrainian troops so they had free flow throughout the south so they could encircle Mariupol so they could get a land bridge to Crimea, so they could have permanent logistics controls from Kherson to Kharkiv that has direct from either the sea or the land for Russia. But uh, the th a third one, Jacob Drazen, was that it was, a f it was a feint, but for different purposes. The thought process was there was people within the Ukrainian political structure that if they saw Russian troops on the Kiev doorsteps, they would use it as a pretext to cut a deal with Russia Give them the Donbass, go home, ha have the war end. But you had pointed out there may have been other military tactical objectives in the way they went about disabling aspects of the Ukrainian army in that field. What's your take on what that was all about? Was it a, you know, a, a big gamble that just didn't work out? Was it a misgaged operation? Was it a feint? What do you think? Well, I... I think it was there were basically two purposes there. Uh, one would have been that the Russians were, I think, going into the war, the Russians were planning to an extent for a Ukrainian collapse. So if the Ukrainian army had folded up and gone home like you know the DOD thought they would, then the Russians would have just marched into Kiev and everything would have been fine. Um, that they would have, you know, it, it would have been a a short war. Um, they would have gotten their hit their objectives in you know, a very short period of time, and uh, they would have, uh, and to do that, they would have had to send troops into Kiev. Um, as it happened, the Ukrainians were much more willing to fight than both uh, most Western analysts believed at the time, including myself. And uh, then, and um, I'm not sure the extent to which the Russians expected this to happen, um, but once it became clear the Ukrainians were planning on fighting and fighting quite hard, well, then I think this operation turned into a operational-scale raid. Um, I wrote a thread about this back in March, actually. Um, 
sort of back when the, the Russians pulled out, and you could, um, and you could tell they they were not planning on sticking around and occupying the area because down south and sort of in the Donbass, they've been very consistent about setting up setting up occupation governments. Um, they've always you know set up a military government anywhere they went through. Up north, they never went. They never did that. Um, even when they had a lot of troops in the area, they just they just ignored the civilian side, which tells me they were not planning on sticking around on the ground. Which tells me they made a decision very on very early on to not that they were not going to stick around. And the thing was, there was Ukraine had had uh, had I mean an entire operational command up near the, the northern border with Russia, OC North, where I mean that the and most of that operational command we haven't seen those units since. Um, there's, uh, I want to say six or seven brigades in OC North. Um, three of those, the Ukrainians haven't even bothered moving their flags to the Donbass. Um, the rest of them, they've sort of claimed they moved them to the Donbass, but we've never seen, at least I, I've never seen any reporting saying their troops were saying troops, troops associated with them were doing anything, which tells me that there was at least one entire, uh, at least OC North was basically wiped out. Uh, during a, you know, during a large, during basically a large scale raid, and the, the, and this is in Russian doctrine going back to the Soviet Union. Uh, look, look up a, it's called an operational maneuver group. It's sort of a detached ground raiding force that just goes deep into enemy lines and wreaks havoc and pulls out, which is what what we saw up north by and large. And then on the, on the west side near Kiev, they they used a different they used a a different strategy. They sort of let the Ukrainians come to them after they realized that. Uh, after they realized that they were not going to be able to march on Kiev and take it with their, I mean, they had a lot of troops in sort of the Gosnell era, but nowhere near enough to take Kiev. That's a big city. Um, but the Ukrainians threw a lot of troops at those guys trying to get them out, and they lost a lot of troops trying to get them out. And same thing, Ukraine's OC West, a lot of those guys, instead of going down south or going east, uh, they went up north and they, they picked a fight with the VDV, and a lot of those units we haven't seen since. Um, armchair, I'm going to yep. post the links in the pinned comment, but where can people find you? And, you know what? Even before we get there, your avatar, where did that come from? Uh, it's, it's concept art for my book. Um, so my, uh, if you look up my, uh, book cover, uh, that's the, that's a different view of the uh, character who's on the top of my book cover. So, uh, let's say I've been, I've been using him for my avatar. Um, think about getting a, getting a new one, uh, the thing about getting a new one, um, and then in discussions to commission a commission a new uh, new profile picture, but um, this is sort of one that you know, looks looks more like me and just as a character for my book. But yeah. just, uh, just don't, don't sell it as an NFT; you'll avoid some problems there. <laughs> oh God, no, NFTs are. Um, now I'm going to post all of the links where we can find you. But to tell everyone before we say our proper goodbyes, where can people find you? So I have a YouTube channel. Uh, it's called Armchair Warlord. Same as my. Uh, same as my handle here. Um, have that. I recently did a, did an interview with uh, Gonzalo Lira. I talked to him for a little while. It was a very good interview. Got great views on it. Um, and I've heard you know, people told me it was a great discussion. I'd say go uh, if you want to hear me talking some more. Actually, want to hear Gonzalo Lira talking a lot. <laughs> go go, uh, go go listen to us talk there. Um, uh, beyond that, um, again I. Uh, I've got a book out. Uh, the link is already in the description, but it's called The Maiden's War, and um, it's a uh, very well reviewed. And people who people who've read it told me they really like it. I think you know, part of 
part of the reason that part of the reason behind that is I, you know, I mean, I, I was a professional soldier for a long time. I can write uh, and did a lot of research in the sort of combat in World War One, and I can really, I seem to have really kind of gotten a lot of it right. Um, and can you tell people as our uh, uh, farewell why they should not be doomers? Well, uh, it's a lot easier going through life as an optimist. There you go. <laughs> you, got, you know what? I'm quoting you. Did you make it up or is that Mark Twain or George Orwell? Uh, I made that up on the spot. Okay. It's a lot easier going through life as an optimist. I'll tell you what, until your life comes crashing down and you realize everything around <laughs> you is a black, but that's the Viva cynicism armchair. I like that. Uh, th- this was phenomenal. Uh, it's a, it's a mixed chat, but the chat is always open and uncensored. So we expect that stick around, uh, Tyler. We'll, we'll, we'll say our proper goodbyes after this. Thank you very much. All of the links are going to be in the pinned comment of the pinned comment. They're all in the description. Uh, you're on uh, Twitter. It's armchair W, right? Yeah, it's at armchair W. Okay, that'll be in the pinned comment. Uh, and by the way, people, if you think armchair is wrong, follow him. Uh, screen grab. And if you think he has been proven wrong, put it out there. That's what discussion is for. It, nobody's infallible. But if people are more often than not right, you might want to listen to them. No doubt. And I'll be uh, at the live chat after the show at vivabarnslaw.locals.com. And all the Torba fans and other race grifters, you got to pay a toll to troll over there, boys and girls. I didn't. I I told Torba on Twitter, someone should let him know. We we, we crafted the Rumble rules based on Canadian and American law, not rabbinical law. So on that note, Robert, uh, stick around. We'll, we'll, We'll talk for a few minutes after this. Everyone else, enjoy the evening. See you soon. Peace out, peeps. Thank you.